tonight, uh, the, uh, the underscore or underline Thursday, October 21st. Please join by that time if you are trying to. Uh, there's a, a picnic and fa uh, fall picnic and scavenger hunt coming up on the 31st uh, after service or right after service. So stick around. Um, we'll have some fun. Um, the kids are ready to are good to dress up if you want to throw them uh, in a Superman costume or something like that. It's all good. Uh, the registration deadline is Sunday, October 24th. The, the reason that deadline is there is because we're trying to figure out how much food do we order for lunch. So please, if you plan on coming, please do so so we can get a, a good count of how many folks plan to attend. Uh, as always, um, please reach out to the diaconate or the pastor, the uh, pastoral care if you are in need of someone to talk to. If you need someone to walk through some things and run some things by, it's all good. Please reach out because we are, God made us a community. When we struggle, it is all of our issues. There's a reason that when Paul in Corinthians told the Corinthians, we are a body. So the pinky does not say to the lips, I don't need you. If the pinky suffers, the lips hurt. Trust me, I got a walking cast on. The ankle broke everywhere else in your body feels it. That is true of believers. All right. Uh, your tithes and offerings, you can see, uh, you uh, can um, either place it on the welcoming table back there. Uh, there's online options or you can mail uh, a check to the P.O. box you see below. Uh, with that being said, uh, let us go uh, to our passage for, to, for the sermon. Um, if you have uh, your Bibles, you can turn there. Your phones, we are reading from the ESV version. Uh, we will be reading from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. I'll give you a minute at home. Uh, to turn there. All right. Allow me to read the word of the Lord. Verse 24 says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven. And he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. 
And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Good morning. If we've not yet met, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Gentry just said, we are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark today. And we find that Jesus has now traveled to this region of Tyre and Sidon. This is an area outside of Israel. It's actually to the north of Israel. It's in Gentile territory. And he and his disciples are there because they've been needing to rest, needing to catch their breath. They've been under a lot of pressure lately. Jesus is now on the government's radar. Herod thinks that he's John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt him. The religious leaders, they're constantly following him, criticizing him in his ministry. Crowds of people keep flocking to him. They're overwhelming him with their needs. And even though his guys have been with him, they still have not figured out who he is. They're not on board with him, and he needs to get them away in order to teach them who he is. And so for a variety of reasons, Jesus relocates to this region of the Gentiles. Verse 24, he did not want anyone to know that that's where he was, yet he could not be hidden. He had things he wanted to do, and so he tried to keep his identity quiet, but he couldn't stay hidden. And so people start coming to him from outside of Israel, in Tyre and Sidon, and then later in the region of the Decapolis, that's a collection of Gentile towns. And what we learn here from Mark is that what Jesus does among the Gentiles are the same exact kinds of things that he did among the Jews. Mark tells us here that he cast a demon out, that he did this miraculous healing. Next week, we're going to learn that he did another miraculous feeding of thousands of people. And why is this ministry to the Gentiles here in the middle? It's because Mark's first readers were most likely a Gentile audience, people like the majority of you, people like me. And this gospel, in part, answers the question, how does Jesus think about us? Do we have a place in his plans? And if we have a place, what is that place? Yes, we saw last week Jesus just declared all foods to be clean. He declared that the Old Testament purity laws have been fulfilled, but how far does that cleanness go? Does it extend past the food? Does it extend to people? Does Jesus like us? Or does he just like our food? And so this section, the one that we look at next week, addresses these questions. We're going to look at three things today to understand what Jesus' attitude is. First, who does Jesus help? Second, what does he do for them? And third, why do they get his help? Who does Jesus help? What does he do for them? And why do they get his help? And let me say before I start that I am pulling a number of thoughts from Tim Keller's commentary on Mark. I referenced this at the start of the series, and I would just urge you, if you've not gotten that, not read that, do so. It's very readable. It's not like uh, a lot of the more scholarly commentaries, but it works very hard to say, here's who Jesus is. Not simply historically, but here's who Jesus is for you and for your life. Very much uh, urge you to, to get that, to read that, and to grow from that. So first this morning, who does Jesus help? A mother comes to him, and from the perspective of the orthodox religious 
Jewish establishment, she checks off all the wrong boxes. She's a Gentile, a pagan. She's female, not male, and she's asking for help for her daughter, not her son. So if Jesus was the traditional kind of Jewish rabbi, she doesn't stand a chance of even getting near him. Clearly, however, Jesus is not traditional. Here he is in Gentile territory, most likely staying in a Gentile house. He's not concerned that he might become unclean, defiled by Gentiles. Jesus is someone that values women like nobody else in his day. You can remember the lady who was bleeding internally who touched him. And you remember how he's not disgusted by her, does not rec pull back, recoil from her? How he calls her daughter, told her that her faith had healed her, that she could go in peace. Or you can think here about how the synagogue ruler came to him because his daughter was sick. Little girl actually died. And Jesus entered the house, touched the dead body, not afraid of uncleanness, and raised this daughter back to life. Jesus is not afraid of coming into contact with Gentiles, not afraid to care about women, not afraid to go out of his way to serve someone's daughter. This Gentile mom has a real shot at getting help from him. On top of that, she does all of the right things. She does all the same things that the synagogue ruler and the woman who was bleeding did. Verse 25, she comes and fell down at his feet. Verse 26, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus responds, in a way that you don't really expect. He says to her, verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Can you, in your imagination, see anyone saying anything like that? I don't know of anybody who would say something like that to anyone especially not to someone who is looking for help, who has humbled themselves in this kind of way. Look at that and think, man, that's, that's pretty insulting, right? I mean, how's that, how's that sit with you? Oddly enough, this lady does not think that he's insulting her. She doesn't blow up at him. She doesn't say, how dare you? I can't believe you just said that. I can't think of anything more racist that anyone could have said to me. You're just like all the rest of them. She doesn't say that. And she doesn't walk away feeling crushed, ashamed of herself, embarrassed. I, I, I should never have bothered him in the first place. What was I thinking? Instead, she stays engaged and she presses her case much even more. Now, why is that? There's three hints here in this passage. First one, unfortunately, is a little bit hidden from us. Jesus is using a parable. He's using a story to make a point. And so he's telling a story about physical things in order so that people will grasp a spiritual reality. And the key to understanding his parable is the word that he uses for dogs. Because it's not a word that would conjure up some kind of a half-starved street animal, a feral scavenger that's either aggressive or cringing. Instead, and this we can see from our English translations, from the woman's response, these are the kinds of dogs that you would let be around your children. They're a small domesticated animal. They're a pet. Something that is actually part of the household. Something that's loved. Something that's taken care of. Something that's cherished, wanted, valued. That's one hint. So keep that love and that value in mind as you think about the second hint 
Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first. He's not saying here, some are cared for and some are not. He's saying, some are cared for first. With the implication that others will be cared for, just not yet. And what he's saying is that there is an order in how God is working in this world. And that order goes all the way back to when he first chose Abraham to have a special friendship with him. If you were here when we did our study on Abraham, you might remember that in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that, there's a purpose here, I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God has a process here of bringing salvation to this earth. He chose Abraham first, but he had everybody else in mind when he did so. He chose Abraham with the intention of working through him and his descendants to rescue the rest of the world, just like he promised Adam and Eve when they first sinned. That's why Jesus will talk the way that he does. You might remember that he talked to a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4, another female Gentile. And he tells her that salvation is from the Jews. Not that salvation is for the Jews, that it's exclusive, like they get bread and no one else does. But it's from the Jews. It's from the Jewish people. And it only goes out later to the rest of the world when the process of coming through the Jews is actually completed. And that's why before his death, Jesus only sends his disciples into Israel to proclaim the kingdom. To announce that the king is here, the Messiah is here, that he has come. But before his death, the process of salvation that the Messiah came to bring is not finished. And therefore, it's only proclaimed to the Jews. We know that Jesus didn't come simply to make a proclamation. He came to actually do something, to open a door so that anyone who wanted to could have a friendship with God. But until he does that, his ministry focus is Israel. His focus is on revealing himself to Israel and on explaining that that's actually what he came to do. It's only after he rises from the dead, once he has actually opened that door, that anyone can walk through who wants to. It's only afterward that he sends his disciples out into all of the rest of the world, to the rest of the nations. And so it's not that Jews and Gentiles are different in terms of worth and value. It's not that some get bread and some don't. But Jews and Gentiles have different claims on Jesus' ministry at this particular moment in time when he's talking to this mother. And it's at that moment that the Jews are prioritized in terms of time, given that that's where the process is that God is working through. That the Messiah is sent to them first, that he's come to feed them, and that they should first eat as much as they want. That's what Jesus is saying to this lady. But he says it in a parable, a parable where he makes a distinction between two groups of people calling one children and one dogs. What does this lady then do with what she's just heard from Jesus? She adopts it. 
She enters into his way of thinking. She enters into his parable. She doesn't storm off mad and angry. She doesn't get depressed and go home. Instead, she allows what Jesus just said to be her reality. She let his words define her and define how she sees herself, how she sees the larger world. She says, here's the third hint, yes, Lord. That's very important. She's the only one who calls him Lord in the entire book of Mark, this female Gentile, the only one who really gets it. She acknowledges that he's the Lord, that he has the right to set the terms of his own ministry, that he defines the best way to rescue this world from evil, that he defines the process, and because he defines the process, he also defines her, and he defines her place within that process. And so she accepts that God's plan is that Israel is first, that they are called to a particular plan, purpose in the plan of God, that the gospel comes to all the rest of us through them. But, and this is important, as she enters the parable, accepts what Jesus says about her, she hears that there's a place in the gospel for her. That while Israel is first, the implication is she can be included. And so she says to him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What is she saying? She's saying, I understand. I accept the goodness of what you're saying, that salvation is of the Jews. And so the benefits of the kingdom come to them first. I don't want to take away their bread. I don't need to have the kingdom come to this world through me. But, I love this, she argues with the Lord, calls him Lord and argues, but the same benefits from the same kingdom that come to them are what's coming to all of us. The crumbs are not a different kind of food. They're part of the same bread. And so she says, Lord, you who are saving us from evil, Lord, you who have power over demons, Lord, there is a place in your kingdom for the Gentiles, a place for the outsiders to come inside, a place where we belong, where we matter, a place where we're in the same house, in the same household, eating the same stuff. And Lord, if that's the case, then it is possible to do it at the same time. Without taking what someone else should have, they can have the bread, Lord. I just need a crumb from that table. I know there's lots to spare. Honestly, Lord, I can't wait. My need is too great. Please give me a peace of mind now. See what she's doing here? She's arguing with God from within what he just said. She lines herself up with him and then talks to him. And she understands from within the parable what God's intention is, what Jesus' heart is. And she understands then that Jesus is not saying no to her. She understands he's actually making her an offer, implying that there is a place for her to belong. And so she takes his offer seriously. She wrestles with God because she wants what he's offering. And she has confidence in him that he will give it to her. She takes him seriously. And he, in turn, takes her just as seriously. In Matthew's account, Jesus tells her that she has great faith. 
grants her her request. Mark doesn't use those same words. He doesn't tell us that Jesus said she has great faith. Mark tells us what Jesus means by great faith. And so Mark tells us that he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way for arguing with me on the terms that I have come into this world. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In other words, Jesus says, you got it. (laughs) You understand that you have to enter into my parables, into my understanding of the world, and that that's the only way to understand me and to understand what I'm doing. That it's the only way you'll ever understand yourself in relation to me. It's the only way you'll ever be able to approach me with faith so that you can ask me for what I actually came here to do. It's the only way that's going to keep you from trying to use me, to overlay your own ideas onto me and use me for your own agenda. And you've done that. You've entered my parable, you've entered my world, and therefore, the benefits of the kingdom are for you now. That's what you and I need to do as well. We have to enter into how Jesus sees the world, how he thinks about the world. We have to put aside our own thoughts and our own ideas of what we think he should be doing so that we can come to him with faith and be part of what he's doing so that we can experience the benefits of what he's offering. That's what we need to do, but you and I both know that that's hard to do. It's easy to keep yourself out of the parable, to not embrace what Jesus himself is offering, to want something else other than what he's offering. It's easy to do that. Think about two different ways that you can do that. One way is to think too highly of yourself, and the other way is to think too little of God. We'll take them one at a time. If you think too highly of yourself and of your own abilities, you're liable to be offended by Jesus. As he lays out, here's how I'm planning to rescue the world. And as he decides what place you have within his plan. And so when you hear this parable, it's easy to be offended. To think, I'm not sure I like a God who doesn't treat everybody exactly the same, who doesn't give them all the same options at the same time. That offends my sense of fairness. I'm just as good as anybody else, just as worthwhile. And so I think I should be treated just like everyone else. I deserve to have what anyone else does. And if God was really fair, if God was really good, then he would make a level playing field treat us all the same way. I'm not sure I like this Jesus. Now what's going on if you're tempted to think something along those lines? What's happened is that you are taking your ideas of fairness and goodness and you're defining them yourself. You're defining what you think they should be and then you're evaluating God by your own definitions at which point he doesn't live up to those, and so you accuse him of not being good and fair. In other words, you're not entering his understanding of the world. You're insisting that he enter into yours. But you're missing something crucial about yourself in that moment. You're missing something crucial about the world, which is that none of us is really good. That already today, you and I have each done things that we're not proud of. 
let's try a thought experiment for a moment. How willing would you be right now to come up here, grab a microphone, and tell all the rest of us everything that you've done this morning? Every last thing and leave nothing out. Everything that you've said to the people in your home. Every thought that has crossed your mind at home, at the coffee shop, <laughs> on the drive over here. Every thought that you've had since you've been here. Every thought about the person sitting next to you. What they sound like, what they look like, what you really think of them. Is there one of us who would not be completely embarrassed if every aspect of your life was suddenly on display for all of the rest of us to evaluate? You realize when you put it that way, none of us has lived a perfectly good life this morning. One that we would be thrilled for everybody else to know every detail of. But God has. God has not had one wrong thought this morning. Hasn't said one wrong thing. Hasn't done one wrong thing. Hasn't done anything wrong this morning or yesterday morning or a week ago or on and on and on all the way back. See, the real standard is not, I'm just as good as anyone else. That's just saying what? We're all equally bad. We're all equally flawed. The real standard is, am I anything like God's kind of goodness so that I can be at his table eating his bread? When you realize, no, not even close this morning, then what would be really fair to get what you and everyone else deserve is to have no chance to be with him at all. To have no place in his plans to rescue this world. To have no bread, no crumbs. To be outside the house with no chance of ever getting inside. That would be fair. Because that's what you and I deserve. But when you start down the road of saying God isn't fair, it's only because you think too highly of yourself. Because you don't fully believe that you are 100% completely dependent on his mercy and kindness to rescue you from yourself. Instead, on some level, you still believe that you are good enough. Good enough that God has to treat you like he treats anyone else. That you're good enough to critique him and his approach if he doesn't. That you're more fair than he is. That your goodness is of such a quality that you can evaluate him and tell him how he should operate in his world and how he should treat you. That you're good enough to have something to say to him about how he decides to rescue this world from evil. Come at him in that way. Think too highly of yourself and you will stay out of his parable. But so will thinking too little of God. Thinking that you are so bad, so unworthy, that God could never want you. That he'd never be willing to do much for you. That, okay, maybe he might tolerate you, but that's probably about it. That he could never really rejoice in you. Get excited about you. Come for you, want to help you. It's the belief that because you don't deserve anything from him, you really shouldn't hope for very much from him. See, that's not thinking too highly of yourself. That's thinking too little of him. 
thinking too little of his love, not taking him seriously enough that he actually wants to rescue you, that he wants to restore you. It's the deliberate choice to believe that you are so bad, there is no bread for you, not even a crumb. It's the belief that your evaluation of your badness is more accurate than God's assessment of his goodness. That you believe that your badness is bad enough to keep you from his goodness. What is that? It's a refusal to believe that God loves you. To take seriously that God is love. That he wants you. That he is as good as he says he is. That God's plan is to make sure that there is bread for anyone who wants it. That he offers it to anyone who will accept what he's doing in the way that he's doing it. And that if all you got was a crumb of what he's offering, that's enough to set right everything that's wrong in your life. It's enough because he wants to set right everything that's wrong in your life. That even though you don't deserve anything from him, that he's better than that. That he will give to those who trust him. Who believe that what he is doing is everything necessary to restore this world and to restore you to fit into a restored world. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too little of him. Enter instead into his parable. And what you'll find is that there is enough grace there for you and for what you need. That's point one. That's who Jesus helps. Anyone, regardless of their background, who gladly enters into the salvation that he's bringing to this world. Point two, what does he do for the people that he helps? The very next thing that we hear about Jesus is verse 32. People bring to him a man who is deaf and who has a speech impediment, and Jesus treats him completely differently than he just treated this mother. Verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And you look at that and you think, what on earth is all that? Touching, spitting, looking up, sighing. We haven't seen all that before. Jesus has done a ton of miracles. No gestures, no arm waving, no emphasis on his actions. In fact, some miracles just happen with no contact, no commands, like the previous one. Demon just left the woman's daughter. Jesus never got anywhere near the child, never said anything directly to the demon, which means what? Jesus is not doing all the touching, spitting, looking, and sighing for his sake. He doesn't need to do all that. It also means that he's not doing it for the crowd's sake because he takes the man away privately. That only leaves <laughs> one person, the man which means all of that is for the man's sake. Which, as soon as you say it that way, makes complete sense of what he's doing. This man can't hear. He has no idea what's going on. Some people brought him to Jesus, but how does the man know why he's there? And Jesus gets that. He enters into this man's world, and he communicates with him in a way that will make sense to him. It's a version of sign language. Takes him away from the crowd. He's communicating, I'm not going to make a spectacle out of you. Some kind of entertainment for everyone else. Don't be afraid. You're safe with me. 
puts his fingers in the man's ears, saying that what I'm going to do is touch inside of your ears down there where something is wrong. Spits and touches the man's tongue, saying, I'm going to do something with your tongue. And to do that, I'm going to give you some of the life that's inside of me. And he sighs. It's a word that means, actually, that he groans. He sighs out of deep concern for this person, out of sympathy for him. And he's saying, I'm doing this because it bothers me. It upsets me that you're in this condition, that you're suffering. I want something better for you. And he looks to, to heaven to make sure that the man understands that it is God and God alone who has healed him. Jesus is utterly amazing here. Takes a very different approach to this man than how he engaged the Gentile mom. He understands that one size does not fit all, but he tailors himself to the person who's in front of him to give them what they need from him. That means he'll meet you exactly where you are too. He'll take into account what you need and how you will hear that from him, and he'll do so for the same reasons that he does so here, so that you learn to trust him that much more. But what are you going to trust him for? Trust him to do what? Think about these two miracles. This man can now hear and speak. Verse 35, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. His ears and his tongue now do what God intended them to do. He is restored back to what God meant for human beings to be. Think about it a little bit. You realize the same is true for the woman's daughter. She's now in control of herself. She's not mastered by some evil personality that takes charge of her. She now has the freedom that God gave her to live on this earth and to be responsible for herself and to live her life. What is Jesus doing? He's entering into a broken world full of broken people who experience that brokenness in different ways. So he changes his approach to each of them, to each of us. But despite his approach changing, his purpose doesn't change. It's to restore each of us back to what God meant us to be. He's restoring the image of God to people who have lost it, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for you and me. And he's doing that because it upsets him to see people who have lost the fullness of their image of God. It upsets him, and he identifies with them in their suffering. He groans. He identifies with us in our suffering. He takes this man away. Think again about this. He's connecting with him at an emotional level. Think about what that would mean for this man. If Jesus doesn't do that, what's going to happen? People are going to gape at him, gawk at him because of his disability. How'd you like that? Being put on a stage for everyone to watch to see if the mighty wonder worker can do anything for you. Jesus has no interest in that. No interest in this man being turned into a spectacle. He identifies with who the man is, with how he's feeling, with what he's had to deal with all his life, drawing unwanted attention to himself from complete strangers because of his disabilities. Jesus won't let that happen. Now he takes the man aside. And then he touches the man. 
this Gentile man, letting him know, I'm not offended by you, put off by you. He shares a common humanity with the man. What is Jesus doing here? He's entering into the man's experience of life, entering into his suffering to pull him out of his suffering into something better. And he's doing that because that's always been God's plan. It's to rescue us from the brokenness in our lives, to restore the image of God to us in every way possible. You get a hint of just how all-encompassing Jesus' plans are. People say, verse 37, he has done all things well. These are Gentiles speaking, but they're echoing the language of Genesis 1, where after God finished all of the work of creation, he stood back and he said, it is very good. I have done all things well. That I have done everything necessary for the world to be very good. It was God's evaluation on what he had done. That's the evaluation that the Gentiles give to what Jesus has done. That he has done all things well. That what he's doing is very good. That everything necessary to restore people fully is what Jesus is about. That Jesus is following in the Father's footsteps. That what the Father did in creation, the Son does in redemption, in recreation, in the new creation in the restoration of all that got broken in the creation. And if what they're saying is not enough, not clear enough, Mark gives us one last hint to make sure that we can't miss it. This is the third point, last point. Why the people who Jesus helps get the restoration that he actually offers. To see this hint, go back to verse 32. And you read there that the man had a speech impediment. This is Mark's final hint. In the Greek text, speech impediment is just one word, mogalalos. It's an unusual word because it only occurs one time in the New Testament here in this passage. It occurs here just this once in the New Testament, but it also occurs just once in the Old Testament. When the Jews translated the scripture from Hebrew into Greek, this word mogalalos occurs one time in the Old Testament as well, in Isaiah 35. And so by using it here in Mark, uh, Mark is telling you, go check out that other time that it shows up in the scripture, that other place where it stands out. And when you do that, you're going to find an astounding passage. We'll read it in a moment, but let me give you a, a little context first. The first two-thirds of the book of Isaiah is mostly judgment prophecies. Prophecies of God's coming judgment against the nations for all their wickedness. Prophecies that end with chapter 35. Now chapter 35 is a prophecy, but it's not a judgment prophecy. It's a prophecy about a completely renewed world. It's about a world that God physically transforms so that it's no longer broken. So that there is no longer suffering. But that the world is now full of life. It's a world that sustains life. It's a world where people can flourish, where they can live well. And it's a world where people do live. The people that Jesus has, that God has rescued, people that he transforms so that they're no longer broken. They're not broken physically, and they're not broken spiritually. 
It's a world that God remakes so that there is no more suffering, no more sin, so that his people can live there and see his glory. So the big picture, after judgment, comes a new creation, a new world inhabited by people who fit into that world, who belong in that world. Very hopeful chapter at the end of all the judgment prophecies. It's a chapter that tells you, Isaiah 35, verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. And you think, well, why should they not fear? Why in the face of evil and judgment should they not be anxious? The prophecy continues. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Why should you not be anxious in the face of all the evil and the judgment? Because God will come and save you. Think, okay, well, how do I know when that happens? What's that going to look like? Prophecy goes on, verse 5. You'll know that God has come and that he's come to save you because then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, the tongue of the mogalalos, sing for joy. You will know that God has come to save you, that you are standing on the front end of the new creation, that you are standing on the doorstep of the new creation when God starts restoring people physically, opening deaf ears, releasing mute tongues so they can speak. When you see God doing everything that Jesus did when he was on earth, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, you're on the front end of the new creation. It's just around the corner. Which leaves one last question. How can you be included? It's great news to hear that he comes to save you, but go back to verse 4 in Isaiah 35 because we skipped over something quickly there that's really important. He comes to save you. That's the last line. But right before then, it tells you how he will come. That your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. That salvation for God's people, the restoration of this earth, comes with God's vengeance against wickedness. That a reconciled world, a world that is at peace with him, requires righteousness, and righteousness demands that sin be punished. That God comes with vengeance to set right what's been wrong. And so God comes to punish his people's enemies. That's why the prophecies are there. They're to encourage God's people that God will not overlook the injustice that's done on this earth. The injustice that's been against done against them. So God promises to judge Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Egypt. He promises to judge every last bit of the world's injustices. And at the same time, he also promises to judge his people. They're included in the prophecies. There's judgment against Jerusalem, judgment against Judah. God promises not to overlook his people's failings any more than he overlooks anyone else's. So then how can coming with vengeance be a good thing for God's people? If you and I cannot stand up here this morning in front of each other without being embarrassed by what we've done today, if we can't face each other's judgment, how can we stand before God and face his? 
It's because when Jesus identifies with his people, he goes all the way. Out there in Gentile territory, Jesus only started to identify with this man who can't hear and can't speak. He identified with him in his suffering, but that's not enough to save us. Not enough to rescue us from all that's broken about us. Jesus, to do that, is also going to have to identify with us in our sin. And he wants to do that. Because this one who groans over our suffering, wanting it gone, also groans over our sin, wanting it gone. Wanting it gone from us so much that he takes it from us on the cross. And so what he does with this man as he pulled him away from the crowd is just the start of his identifying with us. And what Jesus did in private with the man, identifying with him, he would later finish publicly in front of a crowd as he identifies with us on the cross. The God who guarded this man's dignity so carefully will lose his own. Strip naked while people gawk at him, while they mock him, make fun of him, put on display for their entertainment, made a spectacle. And then the father will forsake him. Jesus will be sent away from the family, away from the benefits of the kingdom of God, away from the table where he serves the children bread. The son of God is sent away from the table without even a crumb so that you can now have a seat there so that you can belong. He's rejected so that you will never be. The Son of God is rejected so that you can now be a child of God, so that you can get the bread that you need to live with him forever. Jesus came to save his people. He did come with vengeance, but he didn't wield that vengeance against his people. He came with vengeance to bear it himself to bear it willingly because he wanted to, because he loves you, and because he wants you to have everything that you need to be restored to the full image of God that you were always supposed to be, so that you could have all the benefits of his kingdom, so that you could eat the bread that he provides. We're about to remember that as we receive communion. Let me ask you a question as you get your heart ready. If a crumb from Jesus' table drives out an evil spirit, what do you think a crumb from that table will do for you and your spirit, for your own spiritual life? And just to be clear, since Jesus gave you a seat at the table, since you are now a child of God, <laughs> you're not picking up crumbs from the ground. You're here to feast. You can eat all that you want. There's bread in front of you, all that you need. Take a few moments now. Talk to this amazing God who did that for you. Tell him you don't want a crumb. <laughs> Tell him you want everything that he made sure you could have. Spend a few moments, then we'll share communion together.